listening to the Axis Church Sermon Podcast, a series revealing Christ in the Old Testament, broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to glorify God and make much of Jesus by making disciples and planting churches, making it hard to get to hell from Nashville, Tennessee. For more information, please visit us online at theaxischurch.org. All right, well, uh, I'm Jeremy, uh, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and uh, I'm thrilled that you all are here. Happy summer, happy Sunday. Um, I'm really, really excited to be able to gather with you all and open the Word, teach of its truth, and present opportunities that we have to live in light of this truth being spoken to us today and the truth being that what it is, truth. And, uh, and living in light of it. So let me first start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get busy in Exodus chapter 1, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for um, getting us here. For some, I know it was a, a miracle in and of itself. Uh, we're tired. We're dragging in here. Some of us are running and excited to be here. Lord, wherever we are in, in our excitement or encouragement or discouragement, regardless of the week or the weeks or the month or the year or the life that we've had, Lord, would you allow us the privilege to be able to hone in here and focus on this truth and allow our ears to be captive to this truth and engage the ears of our hearts, Lord, to where we're, our, our heart is engaged and our minds are locked in on what you're doing here in Exodus and how it applies to us today. Lord, would you, would you um, allow me to speak clear and articulate the truth from your word, Lord, as, as it is food spoken and given to people who are hungry. Lord, it is medicine to those who are sick. Lord, would you, would you allow it to be that today for sure? When I do nothing to hinder that, would I only be able to continue that? Because uh, I know you love to save people and to heal people and to speak to people. So Lord, do this. Somehow do this through me, in spite of me, for me and for these others who will hear. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be covering, you know, 12 or 13 chapters today. Um, which if you spend any time with us, that means you're going to be here till tomorrow about 4 p.m. Um, but I'm going to only hit on a couple passages and try to tell the story and fill in the blanks a little bit along the way and then point you to certain passages that I simply could not do justice to summarize. Um, and so go ahead and we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. Um, and as you turn there, I want you to understand what we're doing here. Uh, we're in the middle, I think this is week 8, of a 16-week series through the summer, where we're looking into the Old Testament for pictures, glimpses, foreshadowings of Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come to redeem a people for God's eternal purposes, to glorify Him forever. And so we hear, we, we're looking back in the Old Testament to look through it and see where Jesus is here in the text. Uh, in Luke 24, Jesus, uh, on the road to Emmaus, walking with a couple of the disciples, opened their eyes and taught them that the Old Testament was about him. Starting with Moses and the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he unpacked how the Old Testament is really written as not 
volume one and then a volume two New Testament. But the Old Testament is still just like that of the New Testament. It's about Jesus. It's about himself. He's being revealed there in taste, in shadows. And then in the New Testament, we learn how he is the fulfillment of these shadows. He is the greater of the lesser images. And so here today, we're looking at, last week we looked at Joseph. Today we're looking at the Passover and the Passover lamb and the exodus of God calling a people out to go worship him on a mountain. And so that's where we'll be digging in. So I hope this makes sense what we're doing. Uh, we're, 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 I had a friend here at the Axis tell us that we should take the pages, and this is on you if you want to do this, not, I'm not telling you to do this, but he says that we should take the Old Testament, like, intro title page in your Bible, and then the New Testament title page and rip them out and read it as one testament and just say, this, this is one book written with one big picture, written with one grand story or one grand narrative. And the grand narrative being there's perfect creation, then there was sin and fallenness and brokenness. It's when things go bad. Our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they messed it up for us. And then we have repeated that cycle of sin. So we're sinners by birth and by choice. But not only is there the creation and the fall, but there's, there's a recreation. There's salvation here. There's, there's salvation through Christ. So creation, fall. There's the redemption piece through Christ. He came and rest, he's restoring things and recreating things back to how they were in the garden, except even better and more grand with a whole lot more people in, a, in an eternal city rather than a garden. And uh, so that's the big story, and we're just picking up where this applies in this particular text in Exodus, how it applies to Christ and applies to us, okay? So let's look in uh, Genesis, uh, or Exodus chapter 1, and to set context here from last week, um, Joseph and his family stays in Egypt. Lots of time passes. Joseph, who was third in command, he dies and there was a lot of favor from the Egyptians, a lot of favor placed on the children of Israel, the Hebrews, because of Joseph and how he had helped the pharaohs so much and helped the kings so much. But now that he's dead, that favor no longer remains. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions, of the children of Israel, the Hebrews, at this point. They've continued to multiply. We're told that at the Exodus, there's 600,000 plus men. That's not counting their wives. That's not counting their, their mothers. That's not counting their children. And in this Old Testament era, 10 children, 15 children were not uncommon. And so if there's 600,000 men, that, that's at least, conservatively speaking, that's 2 million people easily, if not 6 million people that the children of Israel had become. And so the Lord is producing them, and he's allowing them to multiply and become a great people, even in number. So 400 years pass, there's a new king who doesn't have favor over the children of Israel. No, no longer does he know Joseph. And because of their growth in population, they become a threat. And we see in Exodus, you'll see here in verse uh, 22 of Exodus 1, because of their large size of population, they're persecuted. They're even murdered. Pharaoh, look at verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you will cast into the Nile, the river, but you will let every daughter live. Now, just to put this in, in what this means, this wasn't a one-time occurrence. This continued to happen 
until he was stopped. And we don't know when that was. We know it was more than just one occurrence. But this was somewhere between 26,000 children to 55,000 children died every year. And as I read and studied this, this could have continued for up to 40 years where this continued to try to crush down the number of the people and limit them in how many they can populate and become a force within Pharaoh's reign. So there's slavery, there's oppression, and frustration begins to build in the children of Israel as their babies are being murdered. Their precious little boys are being murdered. And the oppression from the, the Pharaoh is increasing. It's getting more and more difficult to even be the slave. They began to be tortured. They began to have to endure more. And then we have Exodus 1, look at verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So there's that fear there. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But look at this. Look at this. This is incredible. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And you see this play out even in church history. When the church is persecuted, it seems to spread even more. It's amazing how God works his purposes in and through suffering. It's magnificent to see this. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made, them, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I mean, I don't know if you could paint a more horrible, horrifying picture. They didn't just say that their lives were tough and they were slaves. I mean, over and over, ruthlessly, ruthlessly, slaves, oppressed, burdens. I mean, you just see this. You know, Moses is painting a picture for us here that this was probably worse than what we could even imagine as readers today. The promise that, that God made to Abraham, man, those promises are a distant memory. And it's almost cruel to consider. It's almost a hard joke to take and tolerate because of where they are right now in the middle of their suffering. Being captives to a, a cruel king in a foreign land is so far away from a promised land. It's so far away from, from, from becoming a great nation. It's so far away from experiencing God's blessing. Are you kidding me? The reality is there's death, there's murder, there's sickness, there's hard labor, there's slavery, and there's oppression. I hope you get this glimpse of just this heaviness, horrific situations that the children of Israel had upon them. But then in, in all this thickness and sadness and cruelty and hate and bitterness and ruthlessness, you see such a beautiful passage of Scripture. This is one of my most favorite passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Look at Exodus 2, around 23, ending in 25. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. 
and they cried out for help. Their cry, it tells you what they were crying. They were crying for, to be rescued. Take us from this place. Their cry for rescue from slavery, it came up to God. And this is radically encouraging to me, man. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Man, I love that. What I've done in my Bible is I've circled God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And I, yeah, that's, that's really good news for me. I hope that you're encouraged by that. Then comes the man, Moses. So he hears this cry, and his plan, his plan even from the very beginning, was Moses. They were led into slavery in order for Moses to be there and and, and available for God to use to accomplish his plan of redemption. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he had an older brother named Aaron. Aaron and Moses. You'll read about them all through the book of Exodus. Moses' mother, when he was born, had to hide him because they were killing off the babies. They were killing off the boys. And so her, his first three months of life, she hid him. And when it became too difficult to hide, she made him a, a, a waterproof, protected basket that she placed him in. And she floated him down the river and had Miriam, his older sister, Watch as Moses cruised down the Nile River to where, strategically, he was placed where Pharaoh's daughter was near. And so Pharaoh's daughter and some of her friends and and servants were there in the water, swimming, bathing, drawing water, who knows. But then it it was done at a certain time when Moses would be seen. And so here comes this basket... The daughter of Pharaoh bends over, finds baby Moses, and essentially adopts him. Takes him as her own. And then what is so brave is young Miriam goes up to Pharaoh's daughter in this moment and says, Hey, I see that you have a newborn. I have a mother at home who is able to nurse this baby to health and to maturity, if, if you would want that. And she says, yes. So in God's radical sovereignty and providence, working out his plan, he ends up making it to where Moses lives because of favor found in Pharaoh's daughter's heart for the baby Moses, and then places Moses back in the home of his mother, and she's able to raise him in his early years. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So during this time, he certainly learns Hebrew culture. But then at a certain age, and we're not told this, he ends up moving into Pharaoh's courts. He takes on life of an Egyptian. He's trained in all their education. He's cultured through the Egyptian history and culture. He becomes an Egyptian in all understandings. And then we have 40 years. We lose 40 years. It just jumps. 40 years later, Moses is a grown man. The Lord begins to place favor in the, heart of, in the heart of Moses for the children of Israel, for the Hebrews. One day, there's, these, there's these, this, this cruelty, this slavery happening, and this Egyptian taskmaster, as they're called, that we just read, 
is, is beating, ruthlessly beating one of the Hebrews, one of the children of God, one of the Israelites. And Moses responds. He's probably surprised. I don't know. He's, I imagine he's like, man, been trained so much as an Egyptian. But something happened. Something, something changed in his heart when he saw this cruelty this specific time, because certainly he's seen it before, perhaps not at this level, I don't know, but he sees it and he's moved, and he runs and he kills this Egyptian, and he hides his body in the sand, or he buries it, however you want to look at it, but he disposes of the body, and then word gets around, and shame begins to grow in Moses, and fear begins to grow in Moses, because they're slaves. You don't defend a slave, especially a Hebrew slave. I mean, you're, you're from the, the family of Pharaoh. Why are you defending the worst people? And so he runs. He runs in fear. He flees to a foreign country. He finds himself in Midian. He finds himself in Midian. He meets a man named Jethro. He becomes a shepherd in Jethro's fields. He's just running away from it, getting away from Egypt. Well, while he was shepherding with Jethro, for Jethro, man, he really began to like this particular lady. He ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters. So Moses marries one of Jethro's daughters, and he is a shepherd in the house of Jethro for 40 years. After 40 years, 40 more years, he notices as he's shepherding this particular flock this day, he notices fire. He notices something happening over where there's normally just bushes and trees. And so he approaches this, this flame and he sees a, a bush that is burning but not being consumed. It's, it's, the way I see that is it's still green. It's still got leaves, but there's this incredible flame the tree, the bush is not being consumed. It's not burning up. It's not even crackling. It's just flame in amongst this bush. And as if that were not intriguing enough to be like, that's, oh, that, oh yeah, that's weird. You know, the bush talks to him, right? You're like, this is kind of bizarre, all right? Imagine telling this to Jethro. Be like, I promise. I did not drink too much. This is actually what happened. Like I was out shepherding. I saw this bush and it talked to me. Sure it did. No, it knows my name. It's got a brain. There's something in that bush that knows he's heard you talk to me maybe. I don't know. Right? Just trying to explain this is incredible. It says Moses and he's, here I am. And then we see this in Exodus 3. Flip over to Exodus 3, starting in verse 4 through 12. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. He says, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Perhaps being a shepherd for 40 years, he's been on this ground before, and it wasn't holy, but God's presence made this place holy. It's important to see. And he said, I am the God of your father. And here I see him speaking identity. He's speaking identity to Moses. Who's his father? Is, is Pharaoh his father? Like, like what did adoption look like in, in Egyptian society? He says, I'm the God of your father. You know, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
the Hebrews. I'm the Hebrew God, and these men are your forefathers, and I was their God, and I'm your God. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I love this. You see this played out again. Remember those things I told you to circle? God saw, God knew, God heard, God remembered. Look at this. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land so good that it's flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Wow. A lot just took place in this conversation with this burning bush. Essentially, God says, you will lead and deliver my people from the Egyptians to worship me alone in a new land that I'm going to give you. Sounds a lot like God's plan that we've heard from the beginning in our study, right? Even when he told Abraham. And Moses says in response, awesome. No, he says, I can't. Who am I to do this? And then God says, yeah, good point. Um, I know this already, and that's why I'm going with you. It's not contingent upon only you, Moses. <laughs> You're Moses. I'm going to be with you, and I'm God, and I'm going to make this possible because it's who I am, it's what I do. And so Moses gives several objections that are addressed and answered and shot down by God. So Moses concedes. God would go with Moses. He would provide Moses with miraculous signs and wonders. And, and Moses even, even talks about how he, he stutters. He's got a speech problem. He can't really, he's shy. He's an introvert. And, you know, how, how can he with this, this speech problem, this stage fright, get up and, and talk to Pharaoh? I mean, do you realize the last time I was there, I murdered one of his people? And you just want me to walk right in and be like, Pharaoh, uh, let, um, yeah, let, now, can we go? You know, it's like, what? And he's like, no, no, your brother is eloquent in speech. Aaron, he's eloquent. Who, who are you? He says, I'm God, and I have formed the very mouths of people. Who makes them speak? Who makes them mute? Who makes them hear and who makes them deaf? I'm the one who has formed men. I will be with you. And I'm sending your brother Aaron to, to speak. And I'm going to speak to you. You speak to Aaron. And Aaron can speak to him. Now what, Moses? You know, it's like, let's do this. And it's like he's providing every possible way for Moses just to be obedient and go. The patience of God here is, is remarkable. The greatest comfort of all was found in Exodus 4.12. He says, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you will speak. I will put the very, just, just go and open your mouth and I'll take care of the rest. 
Just go. So Moses, above all, is the mouthpiece of God. He is, he's the messenger. He is what the Old Testament considers a prophet. He's the spokesperson of God, for God, on his behalf. So Moses, he goes into Egypt, and he tries to raise the morale of the children of Israel. And that was difficult, because their, their oppression and the difficulty by which they live, man, it's hard, it's, man, really? Like, you're going to bring up this Abraham thing now? Come on, this is... You don't still believe in that, do you? Like the God of Abraham coming to save us? Yeah, look what it got us. And then he goes to Pharaoh. He's like, Pharaoh, God sent me to tell you to let his people go so we can go worship him over there in that foreign land. No, okay. And he leaves. And then he's sent back with a message to tell him that because of his resistance, that God is going to send plagues to basically get Pharaoh to the point to where he taps out and he's done. He gives up. After the first time that Moses, something needs to be pointed out, is after the first time that Moses came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh not only said no and refused to let God's people go, he said, you know what, because of you, I'm going to make it harder on the children of Israel. I'm going to make it harder on the Hebrews. Not, we're not going to give them straw to make brick anymore. They're responsible to find their own straw. And you know what? They're going to be expected to keep the same amount of bricks being made every single day. And they can thank you, Moses. Now be gone. Wow. So then God sends Moses back into Pharaoh's courts to mention the plagues. So God sends him to warn that there'll be plagues sent on only the Egyptians until they let down their guard and allow the children of Israel, the Hebrews, to, to be freed, to worship God. As soon as he gives in and they're freed, the plagues will stop. Every time a plague comes, Pharaoh says, okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Every single time, that's enough, that's enough. No, wait, never mind, it's not. So then another one comes, no, oh, oh, that's enough. I'm tapping, I'm tapping. Psych. They're staying. And then another one comes, and another one comes, and there's this continual lying of Pharaoh. So the plagues are like this. The first one is all water turned to blood. All water. Flowing water and water in pitchers. All water turns to blood. Frogs everywhere. Like everywhere. Lice. Jumping, biting, everywhere. Flies, everywhere. I mean, I know if, if you're like me, if there's one in your house, you don't stop until it's like dead. Like you're on a mission, you're, you're closing, you're probably not like me, but I, I try to eliminate the possibilities of where he can fly. So I close off everything, I quarantine off to one room. It's awesome if he's in the bathroom. If he's in the bathroom, I got him, you know? And if he's in a window, I can push the blinds against him. You ever done that? No? Okay. Anyway, it's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> it's strategy, okay? So flies come in, and they're trying to get rid of all these flies, and they can't, they can't. And he's like, okay, that's enough. Let them be freed. Never mind, they're not freed. And then he sends the death of the livestock. That was a plague. All the livestock, goats, bulls, cattle, cows, sheep, horses, camels, etc., etc. The livestock are dead. And what's interesting to note, and we don't have time to go into it here, 
But each and every plague, it magnified the power of the Hebrew God. Because literally, Moses says it, and it happens. Power. But also, each plague shows the insufficiencies of the Egyptian gods. For example, they worshipped a, a god of, of the bulls. And so when the livestock were killed, that showed his inadequacies of being a good protector and the one who was looking out for the fertility of the bulls so that they could continue having livestock. So when those livestock died, it showed the insufficiencies of their gods and showed the magnificence and the power of the Hebrew God. Every one of them, when you studied in the context and culture of Egypt. And so the sixth one is boils everywhere. Hell rains down as the seventh. Locusts swarm and devour and eat. And then darkness. Darkness so thick that it feels like it's a, like a quilt, like it's coming at you. Darkness all day, every day. Essentially, the Egyptians would feel like creation is falling apart. It's like all, all things, it's just, it's going, it's bizarre, it's, it's, it's crumbling. There would be such fear. And every time, because of fear, Pharaoh would say, that's enough, and then change his mind. And then the tenth one, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh had a firstborn son. The death of the firstborn sons is required and will die. But if Pharaoh lets them go, it will not happen. But he refuses to let them go. His heart becomes hard and resistant against God. You know, up until this point, the threat for the Hebrews were people. The Egyptians but here, on this particular night, the threat becomes divine. It becomes something other than just people. Exodus 12, 12 says, and this is God speaking, for, which is radical. I'm telling you what God has said. It's, the Bible's incredible. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, not just the Egyptians. This plague's different. This is affecting the children of Israel, the Hebrews, because they're in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The Lord came in justice and judgment that night for the refusal of obeying Him. However, He passes over in peace when He sees blood on doorpost. Look at this. Verse 13, right after verse 12 here, Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you and the houses on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where... Passover comes from right here. Exodus 12, verse 13. And I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God brings his people to himself through redemption, through the blood of the Passover lamb. 
God remains just as the judge, but he also remains gracious as he offers a way of deliverance. The man, it was upon the man in each home to t- was to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without spot or blemish. And he was to let it stay in his home for a certain amount of time. And then he, was, he had to slaughter this lamb. And he had to cook this lamb in certain ways for his people, his children, his family to eat. And then the blood was taken and it was put over the doorpost of each home where they had obediently done what God had asked. And so where there was bloodshed, the firstborns were saved and they were spared from the divine judgment. The blood satisfies the justice of God in relation to those who were obedient and by faith did what was asked. Cooked the lamb, found an appropriate lamb, cooked it, put the blood over their doorpost, ate the lamb. Each, well, here you get a clear picture, a very clear picture of, of what it is to be a substitute and what it means to be propitiation, a substitute absorbing the punishment. In every home there is judgment. There is not a single home in the land of Egypt, whether it be Hebrew or Egyptian, every single home experiences judgment. In every single home there is death. Passover night, there was death in every single home without exception. In the Egyptian homes, it was the death of the oldest son. In the Hebrew homes, it was the death of the slaughtered lamb, the substitute. Every home, there was death. For the Hebrews, the judgment of God had fallen on a substitute. The bondage of the slavery was over. The great movement was now underway. The prayers had been answered. Pharaoh finally says, go, this is enough, go. And they go and they worship God on the mountain. And they eventually come into the promised land. That's where we're stopping today as far as the Old Testament text. Where we see Christ is here. You see, this, the slaughtered lamb is a beautiful picture of Jesus, who is our perfect representative in his life, and who is our substitute in his death, just like the perfect, spotless lamb that was given so that God would pass over in peace the homes that by faith were obedient to do all that he asked. Consider 1 John 1, when John... John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's seeing Jesus as the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's the one who says, It is Christ who is our Passover Lamb. He has been sacrificed. He sees this as a picture of Jesus. Every year, The Hebrews ate a Passover meal to remember what God has done. Even today, we continue to do something similar as we remember the Lord and what he has done for us in taking communion. We remember. Passover meal was given to remember. We take communion to remember his perfect life for us. His body, perfect, without sin. 
And we remember through juice and wine His blood that was poured out to atone and cover for our sins. God is magnificent in doing this on Passover night. Jesus died on Passover night. It's incredible to see the timing. He did not want us to miss this. Jesus' death meant our life. The Lamb's death in Egypt meant life for those who had the blood covering the doorpost. It is Jesus who was given as the great Passover lamb, the once and for all sacrifice for us. Exodus 3.8, God says this. <clears throat> he says, I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up. I've come down to deliver them out and to bring them up. Jesus comes to earth when we celebrate Christmas. It's where God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Very God dwelt among us. He came down as he came down here. He came down in a greater way when he sent Jesus to come among us and live perfectly for us so that when we believe in what he has done, we will not die, but we will live. God did not spare his son, but sent his son to us and gave him up for us. It is God who provides sinners with a sufficient Passover lamb who would die, taking on their punishment so that they could live. Jesus Christ did this for us on Calvary. God commended. He flexed. He manifested. He showed his love toward us and that while we were still unrepentant sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were in our rebellion, not believing, Christ died for us. Even in our doubts and our fears and our rejection of him, Christ died for us. It is on the cross where Jesus took the wrath that was due us. And it's where he gives us his righteousness. He takes all that is filthy in us through our sin. And he takes it upon himself. He experiences that death, our death so that we can live. Jesus is our great Passover lamb who inaugurated about, he, he brought about the new and greater exodus, taking us to a greater promised land than what they knew in the Old Testament. And John, in, in Revelation 5, one of our favorite passages of Scripture here at the Axis, John quotes as he's seeing a future glimpse of that promised land where we aren't there yet personally, but the Christians, that is where we will be when we're absent from the body here. We will be present with the Lord there. And we see in Revelation 5, he says, I saw a lamb standing. I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. The Passover lamb, Jesus, is there. And he says in Revelation 5, Worthy are you... For by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All that's from Revelation 5 where he clearly sees Jesus as the sacrificial Passover Lamb that was given to us so that we could live. Now I want to close out with three, three takeaways and then a final thought for you this morning from this text. First, I want you to notice here that obedience 
and action flows from faith. So faith is first and then obedience and action. So obedience and action flows from faith. At the Passover that we just read, there was trust and faith that were required. Do this, and then there's salvation. And then flows from that obedience and action. Well, today, Jesus, being the greater Passover, he says, I've done this already. There's no do this. I've done this already. Believe that I have done this. And then out of this being saved by Christ and believing in what he has done, then flows obedience and action in the life of the believer. So because we've saved, we serve. We don't serve and obey and pursue because we're trying to be saved. In the Old Testament, they did this to be saved. In the New Testament, when we see Christ flexing on the cross here, it's he's doing this for us, saving us, resulting in now we can be obedient. Now we can pursue. Now we can abide. Now we can be the hands and feet of God. You see, spreading, spreading the blood was evidence of their faith that this was going to work. Continual growing obedience and abiding and pursuing with Christ today is proof of our faith. Knowing the plan of salvation didn't save them. Knowing that you were to take the animal and do this, and it had to be this type of animal, and you had to go, you know, you had to smear it here. And you know, okay, cool, I get it. Knowing it didn't save them. By faith, obeying what God commanded is what saved them. Today, we are saved by grace. We are saved through faith in Christ alone for our salvation. Therefore, we pursue Him and we obey Him. And we're led into repentance when we fail to obey perfectly. And we find grace there, but we continue to pursue. We continue to obey. We continue to abide. This is the life of the Christian. So first, obedience and action flows from faith. Secondly, I want you to hear this morning that God is near. Remember that verse I said that's one of my favorites? I want you to hear that this morning, that God knows. He hears the cries. He cares. He will rescue. He has rescued. He will redeem and he has redeemed. As we suffer and experience affliction in this life, regardless of what it is, whether it be a, a relational disconnect with someone you love, or, or whether it be your tailpipe has fallen off your car, or whether it be the flu, or whether it be persecution for being a Christian at work, regardless of what this is, the suffering of this life, both big and small, God sees these things. He's aware of these things, and he hears us when we cry to be delivered from these things. We see that here clearly in this text, that even while we're experiencing this, he is near. Regardless of when we fail to believe fully, regardless of when we're experiencing discouragement, he is pursuing us with constant love and his provision, regardless of whether we feel like he's close or not. Certainly the children of Israel didn't feel like he was close, but he was. And he was bringing about their redemption through their suffering. God remembers. He's continuing his plan, his redemption. He is aware. God is near. God is in control. 
And if he were bad, then that would not be good news. But God is in control, and part of his nature, part of who he is, he is good. He is a good father who gives good gifts, who works all things according to his purpose that we can't always see. Just like we looked at last week, Joseph. Man, it looked like Joseph being sold as a slave. Could it get any worse? It's what made him the third most powerful in all the known world. But he, I mean, in the middle of it, it's like, man, this is horrible. But God's working about his purposes. And he says that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. So this story tells me that when it seems impossible that God is near, he hears, knows, sees, and cares. And he has a plan ultimately for our good. Thirdly, God sent Moses, God sent Jesus, and God sends you. You see, God sent Moses to speak truth, to speak the truth. Judgment is coming. You can escape judgment if this. And it's through him speaking this truth of salvation that led to God delivering this people to himself that they were freed to go worship God on this mountain. In similar way, God is sending you, the church, to speak truth, to speak the truth of God's salvation, seeing God redeem a people to worship him. Where we just read in Revelation 5, that's going to take place. So just as Moses was sent in and given the words and given the Spirit, I will be with you. I'm going to give you the words to say in the same way he sends you, Christians, into this world every day. You have your job for a reason. Your neighbors are your neighbors for a reason. You're there as a missionary. As Moses was sent to a foreign people to gather God's people, you're sent to a foreign people. And since you don't know who the elect or chosen are, nominate them all and tell them all about Jesus. And say, hey, this is the good news of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what's coming, and, and we're to place our hope and trust in Him. And then leave, leave it up to God for what He does, and, and leave it up to God to even give you the words to say. We're to be obedient messengers of God's plan. <clears throat> Notice that God speaks His, he speaks his personal identity to Moses to empower Moses' mission. He says, I am this, I am that. Therefore, go, and I'm with you. You see the similar thing in Matthew 28. He's, he's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, all power has been given unto me in all the earth. Therefore, all right, because I'm all-powerful, therefore, go into all the world. Teaching them about me, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Very similar to what, eerie similar to where he is exactly what he told Moses. And he tells us, church, you have been saved to glorify God and to make him famous. You are a people of God, a family of God, a family of missionaries here in this city. Now go, speak the truth. Your, your, your words of truth are food to starving people. It's amazing how quickly we go about social justice to feed people and to dig wells. And that is important, and we must do these things. But 
even greater than these physical needs. They need spiritual water. Dig for them a well in their heart by speaking the truth of God and what is happening in his plan of redemption and how they can be a part of this if they by faith believe Jesus, that he was in fact the greater Passover lamb who died so that they could live. And you dig a well in their heart. You feed them starving people. You feed them these words of God, the bread of life. Speak of Him. This is our role. This is our calling. It's not just the preacher's job on Sunday to do this. It's not enough for you just to invest in people's lives and invite them to church. That's good. Do that. But you're to be a missionary. You're to speak of these things. One of the most incredible things one of the most incredible things you can share with people is what Jesus Christ has done for you. Nobody can take that from you. I was hopeless. I was doubtful. I was weak. I was discouraged. But then I'm, this crazy church and this, this, that, and the other, and then Jesus saved me, and now I have purpose. And you know what's funny is my situation hasn't changed. I'm still in the same situation. I still have the same family, but somehow I'm at peace that God is using me in that family, in my situation, to bring about the greater plan of redemption that I can't see right now, but I'm just doing my part and making him famous. That's it. There's a disconnect between us saying, okay, I get it, and doing it. It was there for Moses. I get it. I feel it myself. My prayer is that we would dialogue as Moses dialogued. You know, in essence, he was praying. He was talking with God. He was dialoguing with God. That's, that's in essence, what prayer is. I, I, okay, I know you want me to do this. You hear me. Like, okay, Christians, we're to do this. So we can say to God, okay, God, now I get that you want, want me to do this, but, and each of us can fill this in. I'm shy. I, I don't really know anybody. Um, I need to earn the right to be heard first. And all these things can be legitimate, but as, as Moses's, as his objections were legitimate, but did it change what God did? Did it change what he did with Moses? No. He still said, you're going, and you're going to do this. I'm going to be with you. I'll give you the words to say. I'll put people in your life. I'll make you more bold when you begin to speak. I'll give you the words to speak. But, yeah. But you know what? I, I've done this to my neighbors, and it's awkward right now. I won't make it as awkward. Go. Go talk to them. Every objection is met. My prayer is that us as a church would be obedient in this. It's not enough to be part of a gospel-centered church to change the city. We have to be a part of a gospel-centered church that scatters as a gospel-centered people to make him famous Monday through Saturday and not just on Sunday. This is it. This is the essence. I really feel like I'm saying this for us to hear this this morning. This is totally outside of the notes, and I really feel like we're to hear this, okay? So just speak, speaking to you as my family here. I know it's a whole lot easier for me to get up here, believe it or not, and I, don't, I really feel uncomfortable preaching. I'm not hot. I'm nervous. That's why I sweat, by the way. But, but believe it or not, I promise that's true. I'm very shy. I'm very backward. Jill can tell you. I, I find it a whole lot easier to get up here, as difficult as it is for me, and preach Sunday after Sunday, than walking across and talking to my neighbor Mark and telling him about Jesus. 
So I get that, I get that rub. I get that disconnect. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm called to be the voice that God can use to speak truth to Mark so that Mark will one day be with us singing to God, worshiping Him. I'm the means by which God is going to use to get Mark to worship God on this mountain, so to speak. I'm not Mark's neighbor on accident. I didn't look up who my neighbors were and be like, oh yeah, there's a house for sale in the middle of these four families that we really love. No, we found the home, we moved there. But you know what God did? God moved someone out so that we could move in and he calls these other people to stay so that we could be friends and neighbors. That's exactly what happens with every single thing in life. I'm convinced that you have the car you have, the home you have, the neighborhood you have, the address you have, the family you have, the neighbors you have, the co-workers you have, the job, everything for a reason. And if you read the Bible, you see it clearly. Everything is in this plan, this sovereignty, this providence of God. And we're to play our role as obediently as we possibly can. So I pray that, that we hear that. A closing thought here is on Passover night, there was no escaping death. And in a similar way, the day of the Lord, the great judgment day, is coming. The Bible teaches this. And there will be death and there will be no escape. You see, we are all sinners and we all deserve death. We're sinners through our first parents, by birth and by choice. And the Bible teaches that our sin is not merely a sin against others or other sins against us. But ultimately, all sin is before God. It's an offense before Him and against Him. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we're all sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the price, the consequence, the cost of that sin, the wage of that sin is death. So because we're sinners, and it takes one sin to be a sinner, because we're sinners, we're guilty of sin. Therefore, we're worthy and deserve death. Nothing more. Complete justice. God remaining just has to punish sin. All sin is punished, either in internal separation and punishment, individually, or on the cross, onto Christ. Now notice here in this story, think through this story with me, that the requirement made no mention about the morals of the firstborn son. It didn't say, well, the blood is, is shed there, but if they're good boys, they will live. But if they're criminals, if they're bad boys, if they're thieves, then even though the blood's there, they're not going to be saved. The life of the boys, the oldest, the firstborn, did not hang on his behavior. It depended upon the blood on the doorpost. That tells me that regardless of who you are or what you've done, anybody can get in on this. Anybody. Jesus Christ is our sacrificial Passover lamb. His death on the cross provided the blood for the sprinkling of the doorpost of our hearts. And it matters not whether we've been good or not so good or even what we would consider bad or evil or whether we've been a criminal 
The blood of Jesus is what matters. No one has been good enough to earn their own way to salvation. No one has been too bad to disqualify themselves from this great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. It depends not upon us. It depends entirely upon the grace of God, the sufficiency of Christ, His blood, and faith in His finished work. We owe Him our love, we owe Him our thanks, and we owe Him our obedience. Church, this is what I have for us today. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that we will be less about being a, a, a gospel-centered church and more about being a gospel-centered people scattering as the church. So perhaps not less, but just as much as we scatter. Just as much as we gather, let's scatter in the same way. We sing about Jesus. We much of Jesus. Let's do that as we go. He's with you. And it's not dependent upon you. It wasn't dependent upon Moses. He's with you. He's got it. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I pray that it was helpful for your people gathered here today. Lord, I found it convicting. I found it hopeful. And I pray that the people here found it the same way. Lord, be with us now as we move into this time of communion and offering and just response as, as we reflect here for a few minutes on, on what has been spoken. Would we journal? Would we pray? Would we talk? Would we ask questions with our friends? Would we search our hearts, Lord, with fear and trembling? Would we not move on to the next thing as much as, Lord, sit and just consider these truths that have been shared? Because I believe you're here and I believe you're speaking to people's hearts and I believe you're convicting people and leading people so softly and tenderly into repentance and change. Lord, help us. Help us not just change behavior and add activity, but Lord, help us have our hearts change, therefore our activities change. Do this, Father. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask this. Amen. Amen.